Hi everyone, this is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. Here you'll find stories about law keepers and law breakers, Indian fighters, prospectors, newspaper men, and others written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later. It was a wild time in what Congressman Davy Crockett called this britches bustin' country and an important time in American history. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. Welcome back to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, and I am glad to be back for another season of history and adventure at its best in what I truly believe is God's country, the Western United States. Over the course of this summer, me and the family took several great adventures. We went to Carlsbad Caverns, thence to San Antonio, Texas. We went to Sedona, Arizona. And most recently, we took an epic trip through Moab, Utah, on the way up to Park City, Utah, thence finally to Yellowstone National Park. And so it's inspired by this Yellowstone trip that we have our readings today. We'll begin with Chapter 3 from Hiram Chittenden's Yellowstone National Park published by the Robert Clark Company of Cincinnati, Ohio in 1895. Then we'll read Samuel Coulter and his wonderful Race for Life from the book by Charles Johnston, Famous Frontiersmen and Heroes of the Border, published in 1913. And we'll wrap up with In the Yellowstone Park by Dr. Ferdinand V. Hayden from the book With the World's Great Travelers published by Union Book Company in Chicago, 1901. So without further ado, welcome back to a new season of 1001 Stories from the Old West, and here we go, Yellowstone. Chapter 3, John Coulter Lewis and Clark passed the second winter of their expedition at the mouth of the Columbia River. In the spring and summer of 1806, they accomplished their return to St. Louis. Upon their arrival at the site of their former winter quarters among the Mandans, an incident occurred which forms the initial point in the history of the Yellowstone National Park. It is thus recorded in the journal of the expedition under the date of August 14 and 15, 1806. In the evening, we were applied to by one of our men, Coulter, who was desirous of joining the two trappers who had accompanied us, and who now proposed an expedition up the river, in which they were to find traps and give him a share of the profits. The offer was a very advantageous one, and as he had already performed his duty and his services might be dispensed with, we agreed that he might go, provided none of the rest would ask or expect a similar indulgence. To this they cheerfully answered that they wished Coulter every success and would not apply for liberty to separate before we reached St. Louis." We therefore supplied him, as did his comrades also, with powder, lead, and a variety of articles which might be useful to him, and he left us the next day. To our explorers, just returning from a two-year sojourn in the wilderness, Coulter's decision seemed too remarkable to be passed over in silence. The journal continues. The example of this man shows us how easily men may be weaned from the habits of civilized life, to the ruder but scarcely less fascinating manners of the woods. This hunter has now been absent for many years from the frontiers, 
and might naturally be presumed to have some anxiety, or some curiosity at least, to return to his friends and his country. Yet, just at the moment when he is approaching the frontiers, he is tempted by a hunting scheme to give up those delightful prospects and go back without the least reluctance to the solitude of the woods. Coulter seems to have stood well in the esteem of his officers. Besides the fair character given to him in his discharge, the record of the expedition shows that he was frequently selected when one or two men were required for important special duty. That he had a good eye for topography may be inferred from the fact that Captain Clark, several years after the expedition was over, placed upon his map certain important information on the strength of Coulter's statements, who alone had traversed the region in question. In another instance, when Bradbury, the English naturalist, was about to leave St. Louis to join the Astorians in the spring of 1811, Clark referred him to Coulter, who had returned from the mountains, as a person who could conduct him to a certain natural curiosity on the Missouri, some distance above St. Charles. Coulter had not seen the place for six years. In the Missouri Gazette for April 18, 1811, he is referred to as a celebrated hunter and woodsman. These glimpses of his record, and a remarkable incident to be related further on, clearly indicated that he was a man of superior mettle to that of the average hunter and trapper. Coulter's whereabouts during the three years following his discharge are difficult to fix upon. It may be set down as certain that he and his companions ascended the Yellowstone River, not the Missouri. Captain Clark's return journey down the first-mentioned stream had made known to them that it was better beaver country than the Missouri, and Coulter's subsequent wanderings clearly indicate that his base of operations was in the valley of the Yellowstone near the mouth of the Bighorn, Pryor's Fork, or other tributary stream. In the summer of 1807, he made an expedition, apparently alone, although probably in the company with Indians, which has given him title to a place in the history of the Yellowstone Park, and which was destined in later years to assume an importance little enough suspected by him at the time. His route appears upon Lewis and Clark's map of 1814 and is there called Coulter's Route in 1807. There is no note or explanation, and we are left to retrace on the basis of a dotted line, a few names, and a date, one of those singular individual wanderings through the wilderness which now and then find a permanent place in history. The route, as traced on the map, starts from a point on Pryor's Fork, the first considerable tributary of the Yellowstone above the mouth of the Bighorn. Coulter's intention seems to have been to skirt the eastern base of the Absaroka Range until he should reach an accessible pass across the mountains of which the Indians had probably told him. Then, to cross over to the headwaters of Pacific or Gulf-flowing streams, and then to return by way of the Upper Yellowstone. Accordingly, after he had passed through Pryor's Gap, he took a southwesterly direction as far as Clark's Fork, which stream he ascended for some distance, and then crossed over to the stinking water. Here he discovered a large boiling spring, 
strongly impregnated with tar and sulfur, the odor of which, perceptible for a great distance around, has given the stream its unhappy name. From this point, Coulter continued along the eastern flank of the Absaroka Range, fording the several tributaries of the Bighorn River, which flowed down from that range, and finally came to the upper course of the main stream, which is now known as Wind River. He ascended this stream to its source, crossing the divide in the vicinity of Lincoln or Union Pass, and found himself upon the Pacific Slope. The map clearly shows that at this point, he had reached what the Indians call the summit of the world, near by the sources of all the great streams of the West. That he discovered one of these easy passes between Wind River and the Pacific Slope is evident from the reference in the Missouri Gazette, already alluded to and here reproduced for the first time. It is from the pen of a Mr. H.M. Brackenridge, a contemporary writer of note on topics of Western adventure. It reads, At the head of the Gallatin Fork and of the gross corn of the Yellowstone, the Bighorn River, from discoveries since the voyage of Lewis and Clark, it is found less difficult to cross than the Allegheny Mountains. Coulter, a celebrated hunter and woodsman, informed me that a loaded wagon would find no obstruction in passing. The discoveries are, of course, those of Coulter for no other white man at this time had been in those parts. From the summit of the mountains he descended to the westward, crossed the Snake River and Teton Pass to Pierre's Hole, and then turned north, recrossing the Teton Range by the Indian Trail in the valley of what is now Conant Creek, just north of Jackson Lake. Thence he continued his course until he reached Yellowstone Lake, at some point along its southwestern shore, he passed around the west shore of this northernmost point of the Thumb, and then resumed his northerly course over the hills, arriving at the Yellowstone River in the valley of Alum Creek. He followed the left bank of the river to the ford just above Tower Falls, where the Great Bannock Trail used to cross, and then followed this trail to its junction with his outward route on Clark's Fork. From this point, he recrossed to the stinking water, possibly in order to revisit the strange phenomena there, but more probably to explore new trapping territory on his way back. He descended the stinking water until about south of Pryor's Gap, and he turned north and shortly after arrived at his starting point. Such, in the main, is Coulter's route in 1807 that he was the discoverer of Yellowstone Lake, and the foremost herald of the strange phenomena of that region, may be accepted as beyond question. He did not, as is generally supposed, see the firehole geyser basins, but he saw too much for his reputation as a man of veracity. No author or map maker would jeopardize the success of his work by incorporating it in such incredible material as Coulter furnished. His stories were not believed, their author became the subject of jest and ridicule, and the region of his adventures was long derisively known as Coulter's Hell. The story of Coulter's subsequent experience before he returned to St. Louis is thrilling in the extreme. Although it has no direct bearing upon this narrative, still, since it is part of the biography of the discoverer of the Upper Yellowstone, it cannot be omitted. We'll return right after these sponsor messages.
And now, back to our story. Samuel Coulter and his wonderful race for life. When Lewis and Clark were on their way to the Pacific coast, they had with them two trappers, one of whom was to meet with extraordinary adventures. These were Samuel Coulter and Lemuel Potts, both sturdy sons of the West, who obtained permission from the leaders of the expedition to remain near the headwaters of the Missouri River in order to hunt and to trap. They intended to overtake the main body after a short time and hoped to obtain enough beaver skins to net them a good sum of money on their return to civilization. You probably remember that Lewis had trouble with the Blackfeet when near the Missouri, one of whom he had to kill because he began to run off the horses. For this reason, these two trappers knew they would have to use extreme caution or else they would fall into the clutches of some of these natives. The vengeance of an Indian is always swift and sure. Knowing that the Indians were all about them, the trappers decided upon the following plan. They would lie hidden during the day, would set their traps late in the evening, and would visit them in order to remove the game in the gray of the early morning. Success met their efforts, and before long they had a goodly quantity of skins. No Indians were seen, although Indian sign had been abundant, and they knew that there were plenty of Blackfeet in the vicinity. One morning, while paddling up a winding stream where numerous traps were set, to their keen ears came the sound of heavy tramping. Those are Indians, whispered Coulter. Let's decamp at once and get back to our starting place. But Potts thought differently. Those are buffalo, said he. Wait until we round the corner and you'll find out that I'm right. Just then, they swirled around the bend in the stream and to their dismay found both banks fairly swarming with Blackfeet. Escape was impossible and although cold shivers began to run up and down his spine, Coulter ran the bow of the canoe towards the bank. The Indians began to whoop loudly as they saw them approach and called to them to come ashore. This they did, and as they stepped upon the bank, a burly native jumped forward and snatched the rifle which Potts carried from his hand. Coulter was a man of great physical strength and courage, who was not afraid of twenty Indians. He wrested the weapon away from the native and handed it back to Potts, and confronted the startled braves with a face filled with determination and fire. Potts jumped into the canoe pushed out into the stream, and started to paddle away in spite of the commands of Coulter, who cried to him to come back and take him with him. Suddenly, an arrow whizzed from the bank, and Potts cried out, I'm wounded, Coulter! In spite of this, he raised his rifle, fired, and killed the native who had shot him. A wild yelping now rose from the other natives, and before five minutes had passed, the body of Potts fell into the water, riddled with hundreds of arrows. Coulter stood upon the bank, unarmed and alone. The Blackfeet swarmed around him, stripped him of his clothes, and then held a powwow while they determined what they should do with him. "'Let's skin him alive,' said one. "'No, whip him to death,' suggested another. "'Burn him at the stake,' shouted a great many." The wrangling thus continued until it was decided to let him run a race for his life. He was to get away if he could, 
but if he could not, he was to be burned at the stake. All seemed to be much pleased at this decision. A chief now approached the captive and said, Paleface, you run fast, eh? No, no, chief, answered the trapper. I am a very poor runner, slow as a tortoise. This was an untruth, for Coulter was one of the swiftest foot racers upon the border. But his reply was hailed with loud shouts. Lit upon a sandy plain by the chief, he was followed by six hundred armed Indians, who gave him a start of three hundred yards, and then told him to go. As Coulter dashed away, a fierce whoop arose from all the Indians, and they started in pursuit with continued yelping. In a few moments they saw that it would take their swiftest runners to overhaul the white man, for he had sped along like a greyhound. They had, however, a great advantage over him, for his feet were naked, and there were prickly plants, sandbars, and sharp stones upon the plain. Their feet, on the other hand, were protected by stout deerskin moccasins. On and on sped the gallant scout, although his feet were cruelly lacerated by the stones and shrubs. On and on he went, while the shouting of the Indians died away as they perceived that he was outdistancing them. None caught up to him. In fact, he drew rapidly away from the very swiftest of all of them. After a run of three miles, Coulter glanced back over his shoulder and saw that one of his pursuers was holding his own with him. He had headed towards the Jefferson Fork of the Missouri River and knew that if he once reached the water, he could doubtless hide himself. The pursuing Indian had a spear in his hand, and so fleet was he that he was soon within a hundred yards of the trapper. If I do not stop this Indian, said Coulter to himself, it's all over with me. Straining every muscle in order to get away, Coulter suddenly felt the blood gushing from his nose, and he knew that a slight hemorrhage had been occasioned by his efforts. He was but a mile from the river, and again looking back, saw the Indian within twenty yards of him. Escape was now impossible. Turning swiftly around, he stood absolutely still and opened his arms. Indian was astounded at this unexpected action, and, in endeavoring to check his headway, fell to the ground. The lance, meanwhile, flew from his hand and stuck into the earth at a considerable distance from him, where it broke off. Luck was with the half-winded man of the plains, who now turned about, seized the broken spearhead, and darted swiftly to the side of the prostrate Indian. The trapper aimed the sharp lance at the Indian and drove it into him with such force that he was pinned to the earth. A deep groan came from the helpless brave as the backwoodsman again turned to run towards the river. Although he was now exhausted by loss of blood and by the terrible race for life, his pursuers were still far behind, and he reached Jefferson's Fork so far ahead of them that they could not see him. One spring, he had leaped into the water and was swimming towards a little island about a hundred yards from the bank. Upon the edge of this had lodged a clump of sticks and floating brush. Coulter made for it and dove beneath the tangled mass emerging somewhere in its center, with his head between two giant logs. Breathing with great difficulty and faint from his exhausting run, he waited with throbbing heart for the Indians to arrive. 
This they did very shortly. They had stopped beside the body of their comrade and found that he was in his death agony. Infuriated by this, and with terrific yells, they again set out in pursuit of Coulter, who heard their vindictive screeching as they reached the bank. Some of them swam out to the island and punched about in the drift with their spears. As they did so, the trapper drew down in the water so that only his nose was exposed. He remained thus for about half an hour, when the Indians gave up their search and returned to the body of the fallen chieftain. Coulter feared that they might set fire to the drift, but this idea did not seem to have entered the minds of the Blackfeet, who began a hideous wailing as they gathered round their leader. Carrying him upon their shoulders, they started back to their camp, and gradually their wild lamentations died away in the shadows of the forest. The trapper was in a desperate predicament, for he was without either clothes or rifle. His feet had been lacerated by the stones and plants so that he could walk only with difficulty, and his body was chilled by his long immersion in the cold waters of the river. Certainly, there was no brilliant prospect before him, for he was miles from any settlement. Would you not think that he would have become absolutely disheartened and would have given up in despair? Not so with this bold follower of Lewis and Clark. After a day's rest and a meal of berries, grass, and stalks from shrubs known as sheep sorrel, he started for Lisa's fort on the Yellowstone, a distance of a week's hard journey. Fortune favored this man of iron. Toads, frogs, and insects became his food, and with clothing of bark and reeds, he finally reached the hospitable shelter of Manuel Lisa's trading station. He was scarcely recognizable. Coulter had suffered untold agony from thirst, from hunger, and from cold. The evenings are chilly in this country, even in the summer, and although he made a fire by rubbing two dry sticks together, he shivered all through the night. The wild sheep sorrel had given him his most needed nourishment, while the body of a dead rabbit, which he fortunately stumbled upon, had brought sufficient strength to carry him to the fort. No wonder that the trappers there gave three rousing cheers for this frontier hero. In ten days after his arrival at the group of log huts, Samuel Coulter was again fit for service, but Lewis and Clark were already far away upon their transcontinental journey. He remained at the fort, had several brushes with the Blackfeet, and eventually found his way back to the settlements, where he was much admired for his nerve and courage in eluding the wild denizens of the plains near the headwaters of the Missouri. Certainly he had good reason to be proud of his escape from the bloodthirsty hands of the Blackfeet warriors. Three cheers for brave Sam Coulter. He well deserves to be remembered as a marathon runner who ran a more thrilling race than the tame affairs of the present day, where no band of Indians who are thirsting for one's gore pursue the struggling athletes. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Now we will hear a selection from the book titled With the World's Great Travelers, Volume 2, published by the Union Book Company of Chicago in 1901, 
we will hear In the Yellowstone Park by Dr. Ferdinand Hayden. About the middle of this century, reports began to be heard of a veritable wonderland in the far west, as yet seen only by trappers and other adventurers, whose stories of the marvels they had beheld whetted the appetite of scientific explorers. The first attempt to reach the Yellowstone region was made in 1856, but failed, and it was not until 1869 that an exploring party entered this marvelous valley. A second party reached the Yellowstone region in 1870, and Mr. N.P. Langford wrote a glowing account of the wonders observed. The first detailed description of the locality was made by Dr. Hayden, Chief of the Geological Survey of the Territories in 1871. From this extended and highly interesting account, we can only quote a few passages, selecting those which relate to the hot springs and geysers of the wonderful Firehole River region. In the early morning of August 30th, the valley was literally filled with columns of steam, ascending from more than a thousand vents. I can compare the view to nothing but that of some manufacturing city like Pittsburgh as seen from a high point, except that instead of black coal smoke, there are here and there the white, delicate clouds of steam. Small groups of solitary springs that are scattered everywhere in the woods, upon the mountainsides, and which would otherwise have escaped observation, are detected by the columns of steam. It is evident that some of these groups of springs have changed their base of operations within a comparatively recent period, for about midway on the east side of the lower basin there is a large area covered with a thick, apparently modern deposit of silica, as white as snow, while standing quite thickly all around are the dead pines which appear to have been destroyed by the excessive overflow of water and the increased deposition. These dry trees have a most desolate look. Many of them have fallen down and are encrusted with the silica, while portions that have fallen into the boiling springs have been reduced to a pulp. This seems to be one of the conditions these trees suffer, for when the pulpy masses of wood are permitted to dry by the cessation of the springs, the most perfect specimens of petrified wood are the result. In one instance, a green pine tree had fallen so as to immerse its thick top in a large hot basin, and leaves, twigs, and cones had become completely encrusted in the white silica, and a portion had entered into the cellular structure, so that when removed from the water and dried in the sun, very fair specimens were obtained. Members of my party obtained specimens of pine cones that were sufficiently silicified to be packed away among the collections. In order that we might give a complete view of the lower geyser basin from some high point, we made a trip to the summit of Twin Buttes on the west side of the basin. From the top of these buttes, which is 630 feet above the Firehole River, we obtained a bird's eye view of the entire lower portion of the valley, which was estimated to be about 20 miles long and 5 miles wide. To the westward among the mountains were a number of little lakes, which were covered with a huge species of water lily. The little streams precipitated their waters in the most picturesque cascades or falls, one of them was named by Colonel Barlow, the Fairy Fall, 
from the graceful beauty from which the little stream dropped down a clear descent of 250 feet. It is only from a high point that it can be seen, for the water falls gently down from the lofty overhanging cliff into a basin at the foot, which is surrounded by a line of tall pines, 100 to 150 feet in height. The continual flow of water of this little fountain has worn a deep channel or furrow into the vertical sides of the mountain. As far as the eye can reach can be seen the peculiar plateau mountain ranges, black with the dense forests of pine, averaging from 9,000 to 10,000 feet above sea level. A spring on a level with the river has an enormous square basin, 30 feet across, of unknown depth. We call this the Bath Spring. A little below is another singular form of wonderful beauty. The water issues from beneath the crust near the margin of the river from several apertures. The basin itself is 15 by 20 feet and 20 feet deep. It seemed to me that nothing could exceed the transparent clearness of the water. The slightest object was reflected in its clear depths and the bright blue tints were indescribable. We call this the cavern. The mud springs are also numerous and important in this group. As usual, they are of all sizes, from an inch or two to 20 or 30 feet in diameter, with contents varying from mere turbid water to stiff mud. They seldom have any visible outlet, but are in a constant state of agitation with a sound that varies with the consistency of the contents. There are several of the mud pots that give off a suppressed thud as the gases burst their way through the stiff mortar. Sometimes the mortar is as white as snow, or brown, or tinged with a variety of vivid colors. On the west side of the fire hole, and along the little branch that flows into it from the west, are numbers of springs of all grades and the broad bottom is covered with a snow-white siliceous crust. Near the base of the mountains, there is a massive, first-class boiling spring, in a constant state of violent agitation, sending forth great columns of steam, with a singular toadstool rim. About three miles up the fire hole, we meet with a small but quite interesting group of springs on both sides of the stream. There is a vast accumulation of silica, forming a hill 50 feet along the level of the river. Upon the summit of one of the largest springs yet seen, nearly circular, 150 feet in diameter, boils up in the center, but overflows with such uniformity on all sides as to omit the formation of no real rim, but forming a succession of little ornamental steps from one to three inches in height, just as water would congeal from cold in flowing down a gentle declivity. There was the same transparent clearness, the same brilliancy of color to the waters, but the hot steam and the thinness of the rim prevented me from approaching it near enough to ascertain its temperature or observe its depth. It is certainly one of the grandest hot springs ever seen by human eye. But the most formidable one of all is near the margin of the river. It seems to have broken out close by the river and to have continually enlarged its orifice by the breaking down of its sides. It eventually commenced on the east side 
and the continual wear of the underside of the crust on the west side has caused the margin to fall in, until an aperture at least 250 feet in diameter has been formed, with walls or sides 20 to 30 feet high, showing the layers of deposition perfectly. The water is intensely agitated all the time, boiling like a cauldron, from which a vast column of steam is ever rising, filling the orifice. As the passing breeze sweeps it away for a moment, one looks down into this terrible seething pit with terror. All around the sides are large masses of crust that have fallen from the rim. An immense column of water flows out of this cauldron into the river, as it pours over the marginal slope, it descends by numerous small channels, with a large number of smaller ones spreading over the broad surface. And the marvelous beauty of the strikingly vivid coloring far surpasses anything of the kind we have seen in this land of wondrous beauty. Every possible shade of color, from vivid scarlet to a bright rose, and every shade of yellow to a delicate cream, mingled with the vivid green from minute vegetation. Some of the channels were lined with a very fine, delicate yellow, silky material, which vibrates at every movement of the waters. There was one most beautiful funnel-shaped spring, 20 feet in diameter at the top, but tapering down, lined inside and out with the most delicate decorations. Indeed, to one looking down into its clear depths, it seemed like a fairy palace. The same jelly-like substance or pulp to which I have before alluded covers a large area with the various shades of light red and green. The surface yields to the tread like a cushion. It is about two inches in thickness, and although seldom so tenacious as to hold together, yet it may be taken up in quite large masses, and when it becomes dry, it is blown about by the wind, like fragments of variegated lichens. From this description of the hot springs of the region, we proceed to an account of its marvelous geyser phenomena. We camped the evening of August 5th in the middle of the upper geyser basin, in the midst of some of the grandest geysers in the world. Colonel Barlow and Captain Heap of the United States Engineers were camped on the opposite side of the fire hole. Soon after reaching camp, a tremendous rumbling was heard, shaking the ground in every direction, and soon a column of steam burst forth from a crater near the edge of the east side of the river. Following the steam arose, by a succession of impulses, a volume of water, apparently six feet in diameter, to the height of two hundred feet, while the steam ascended a thousand feet or more. It would be difficult to describe the excitement which attended such a display. It is probable that if we could have remained in the valley several days and become accustomed to all the preliminary warnings, the excitement would have ceased, and we could have admired calmly the marvelous ease and beauty with which this column of hot water was held up to that great height for the space of twenty minutes. After the display is over, the water settles down in the basin several inches, and the temperature slowly falls to 150 degrees. We call this the Grand Geyser, for its power seemed greater than any other of which we obtained any knowledge in the valley. After describing more particularly the peculiarities of the Grand Geyser and the smaller neighboring geysers, Dr. Hayden gives us an enthusiastic pen picture of 
of the beautiful type of the springs. On the summit of the Great Mound is one of a class I have called Central Springs. It is located on the highest point of the mound on which this great group belongs, has a crater nearly 20 feet in diameter, barely nearly quiescent, slightly bubbling, or boils near the center with a thin, elegant rim projecting over the spring, with the water rising within a few inches of the top. The continual but very moderate overflow of this spring, uniformly on every side, builds up slowly a broad-based mound, layer by layer, one-eighth to one-sixteenth of an inch. Looking down into these springs, you seem to be gazing into fathomless depths. While the bright blue of the water is unequaled even by the sea, there are a number of these marvelous central springs with projecting rims carved with an intricate delicacy, which of itself is a marvel. And as one ascends the mound and looks down into the wonderfully clear depths, the vision is unique. The great beauty of the prismatic colors depends much on the sunlight. But about the middle of the day, when the bright rays descend nearly vertically and a slight breeze just makes a ripple on the surface, the colors exceed comparison. When the surface is calm, there is one vast chaos of colors, dancing as it were, like the colors of a kaleidoscope. As seen through this marvelous play of colors, the decorations on the sides of the basin are lighted up with a wild, weird beauty which wafts one at once into the lands of enchantment. All the brilliant feats of fairies and genie of the Arabian Nights entertainments are forgotten in the actual presence of such marvelous beauty. Life becomes a privilege and a blessing after one has seen and thoroughly felt these incomparable types of nature's cunning skill. Our search for new wonders leading us across the Firehole River, we ascended a gently encrusted slope and came suddenly upon a large oval aperture with scalloped edges, the diameters of which were 18 and 25 feet. The sides corrugated and covered with a grayish-white siliceous deposit, which was distinctly visible at a depth of a 100 feet below the surface. No water could be discovered, but we could distinctly hear it gurgling and boiling at a great distance below. Suddenly it began to rise, boiling and spluttering and sending out huge masses of steam, causing a general stampede of our company, driving us some distance from our point of observation. When within about 40 feet of the surface it became stationary, we returned to look down upon it. It was foaming and surging at a terrible rate, occasionally emitting small jets of hot water nearly to the mouth of the orifice. All at once it seemed seized with a fearful spasm and rose with incredible rapidity, hardly affording us time to withdraw to a safe distance. When it burst from the orifice with terrific momentum, rising in a column the full size of this immense aperture to the height of 60 feet and through and out of the apex of this vast aqueous mass, five or six lesser jets or round columns of water varying in size from 6 to 15 inches in diameter were projected to the marvelous height of 250 feet. 
these lesser jets, so much higher than the main column and shooting through it, doubtless proceed from auxiliary pipes leading into the principal orifice near the bottom, where the explosive force is greater. If the theory that water by constant boiling becomes explosive when freed from air be true, this theory rationally accounts for all irregularities in the eruptions of these geysers. This grand eruption continued for 20 minutes and was the most magnificent sight we ever witnessed. We were standing on the side of the geyser nearest the sun, the gleams of which filled the sparkling column of water and spray with myriads of rainbows, whose arches were constantly changing, dipping, and fluttering hither and thither, and disappearing only to be succeeded by others again and again, amid the aqueous columns, while the minute globules into which the spent jets were diffused, when falling, sparkled like a shower of diamonds, and around every shadow which the denser clouds of vapor, interrupting the sun's rays, cast upon the column, could be seen a luminous circle, radiant with all the colors of the prism, and resembling the halo of glory represented in paintings as encircling the head of divinity. All that we had previously witnessed seemed tame in comparison with the great and perfect grandeur and beauty of this display. Two of these wonderful eruptions occurred during the 22 hours we remained in the valley. This geyser we named the Giantess. A hundred yards distant from the giantess was a cone, very symmetrical, but slightly corrugated upon its exterior surface, three feet in height and five foot diameter at its base, and having an oval orifice 24 by 36 and a half inches in diameter, with scalloped edges. Not one of our companies supposed that it was a geyser, and among so many wonders it had almost escaped notice. While we were at breakfast upon the morning of our departure, a column of water entirely filling the crater shot from it, which, by accurate triangular measurement, we found to be 219 feet in height. The stream did not deflect more than four or five degrees from a vertical line, and the eruption lasted 18 minutes. We named it the Beehive. On our return to the lake from this basin, we passed up the Firehole River to its source in the Divide. Early in the morning, as we were leaving the valley, the grand old geyser, which stands sentinel at the head of the valley, gave us a magnificent parting display. And with little or no preliminary warning, it shot up a column of water about six feet in diameter to a height of 100 to 150 feet and by a succession of impulses seemed to hold it steady for the space of 15 minutes, while the great mass of water falling directly back into the basin and flowing over the edges and down the sides into large streams. When the action ceases, the water recedes beyond sight, and nothing is heard but the occasional escape of steam until another exhibition occurs. This is one of the most accommodating geysers in the basin and during our stayed, played once an hour quite regularly. On account of its apparent regularity and its position overlooking the valley, it was called by Messrs. Landford and Doan, Old Faithful. It has built up a crater about 20 feet high around its base, and all about it are decorations similar to those previously described.
On the morning of August 6, we ascended the mountains at the head of the Firehole River. On our return to the hot spring camp on the Yellowstone Lake, we had merely caught a glimpse of the wonderful physical phenomena of this remarkable valley. We had just barely gleaned a few of the surface observations, which only sharpened our desire for a larger knowledge. There is no doubt in my mind that these geysers are more active at certain seasons of the year than at others. We saw them in midsummer when the surface waters are greatly diminished. In the spring, at the time of the melting of the snows, the display of the first-class geysers must be more frequent and powerful. We left this valley with its beautiful scenery, its hot springs and geysers, with great regret. And thus concludes our readings about Yellowstone National Park, its discovery, some of its landscape, and the great adventures of Samuel or John Coulter. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. And thank you once again to John Hagedorn and the 1001 Stories Network for making this possible. We'll see you next week with a new episode. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.